0: Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's twice weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. That's me, I'm your host each week, 25 plus year associate of the Franklin Covey Company. It's my honor to be reinvited each week twice back into this uh, seat where I have the opportunity to help shine what is Franklin Covey's very big platform and bright spotlight onto thought leaders from all around the world. People have expertise in building a high trust culture, executing strategy, how to finish projects? What is the science and motivation behind becoming an expert at relationships? You name it, we shine our spotlight on it each week. Sometimes they are Franklin Covey thought leaders, other times they are friends of the family, so to speak, like today, Sal Khan, who everyone in the world recognizes this man's name as a futurist and innovator around education, really democratizing the way all of us learn. He, of course, is the founder of the Khan Academy, amongst other great Innovations. His most recent book, The One World Schoolhouse, Education Reimagined, is one of many books he has authored or is authoring. Sal Khan, welcome to On Leadership. Thanks for having me. I mean, let's debate. Is, it, is your library better than my library? What do you think, Sal? Mine looks more functional. Only because mine are nailed to the wall. Yes, You're exactly I think it's hard right. To yours. Good point. Hey, Sal, it's such an honor that you would take some time today to pour into the, the brains and hearts of all of our millions of listeners and watchers around the world. Obviously, I have a lot of questions to ask you about what does the future look like and what should we be aware of. For the last few people who may not be aware of Sal Khan or of your contribution would you just indulge us and rewind a couple of decades you've obviously had a great career in high tech and in in, in finance you of course i think have an mba from harvard three degrees from mit i can say that easier than you can rewind a few decades and reorient our listeners and viewers to your journey
1: yeah uh, uh, the long story short some folks might be familiar with this back in 2004 I was a year out of business school. I was working at a hedge fund. Just got married. Family visiting me from New Orleans. Came out of conversation, my twelve-year-old cousin Nadia was having trouble in math. I offered to tutor her. She goes back to New Orleans. I start tutoring her remotely. I was based in Boston at the time. Uh, slowly but surely, she gets caught up with her class. At that point, I become what I call a tiger cousin. I call up her school, and I say, you know, I think that Nadia that was uh, placed in that remedial track should be able to retake that test. They said, who are you? But <laughs> they 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 actually allowed her to retake that test and. She went to an advanced math track so I was I was pretty pumped by that I started tutoring her younger brothers word spreads in my family that free tutoring is going on before I know it I am tutoring 10-15 cousins family friends via phone and instant messenger every day uh, after work and uh, in 2005 I thought hey you know I, I I like to code every now and then my earlier background was in tech Uh, And I saw my cousins had gaps, they needed more practice, so I started writing some software for them for them to get as much practice and feedback as they need. Tools that I as their tutor or their teacher could keep track of what they were doing. That was Khan Academy, well before any uh, YouTube videos. Uh, But then in 2006, a friend suggested that I make YouTube videos to complement that software I was making. Uh, I did it. Uh, I was skeptical at first. Uh, But then that also took on a life of its own. I started getting letters from you know all over the world My cousins famously told me they liked me better on YouTube than in person. I took that as positive feedback Uh, But then by 2008 I'm like this is like a real thing There were like 50 or 100,000 folks using it Set it up as a a not-for-profit with the mission free world-class education for anyone anywhere And then 2009 I quit my day job and 2010 we got our first real funding and you know you fast forward to today Khan Academy now has over 150 million users. It's in 50 plus languages, um, pretty much in every country in the world. Uh, Our goal is literally all the core academic subjects from pre-K through the core of college in a personalized way where students can learn at their own time and pace, both outside of school and inside of schools. And
0: now we're doing a lot with AI. Sal, rewind a little bit. Thank you for that uh, lineage. You founded Khan Academy in what year? It's a fuzzy
1: question. About? (laughs) 2004, I yeah. started tutoring cousins. 2005, I started writing the software for them. 2006, I made videos. 2000, late 2007, I incorporated it as a not-for-profit, and then 2009, I quit my job.
0: So my summer, day job. right? So the evolution is somewhere between you know 18 and um, and ish years ago. Uh, <laughs> I'd like you to think thoughtfully about this next question. What have you learned since founding Khan Academy? what are like one or two insights that you could share with the millions of people that are listening to this podcast and watching, many of which are responsible for the learning of others inside their schools, school districts, universities, colleges, trade schools, organizations, departments, you name it. What, what have you learned that might interest people in, on your journey?
1: Oh I mean so many learnings on so many different di- dimensions but I guess if we if we focus just narrowly on on the learning itself yeah if you're trying to get people to understand a concept like algebra or physics or something I think the first thing is to just realize and in hindsight I think this we all reflect on our own lives and it's true we just oftentimes don't realize it's happening in other people's heads as well it, people can it's very easy to get a little insecure about learning uh, it's a you, you, you try to tackle something, you might be even embarrassed to admit that you don't know it. Uh, you can get frustrated very easily when you're having trouble learning it, especially if you at least perceive other people understand it. Uh, and, and what I stumbled on early with my cousins was, you know, this is why they were saying they preferred the videos uh, to me live. And it wasn't that they didn't enjoy me live, they liked the aspects of that I was in, involved in their life, that I was talking to them, I was taking the time. But the value of videos was there's was no shame. There's no embarrassment. They didn't have that extra fear that they were wasting my time or that I might judge them somehow. Uh, it was accessible whenever they wanted. They can pause and repeat. So I think that dimension of like, wow, there, there is a lot of insecurity and shame and fear around learning that we oftentimes don't talk about, especially in corporate learning, because now you're talking about adults, many with you know, fancy degrees, and then all of a sudden someone in the firm gives, says an acronym or just assumes that everyone else would understand what they're saying and then everyone just stays quiet in the room, even though in reality 90% of the people in the room don't understand what's happening. How do you create outlets so that people don't have to be captive to that, so that they can, at their own time and pace, without any fear of judgment, uh, start start to delve into it? So that's, that's one big thing. I think that follows into just motivation. I think motivation is everything. If someone is suitably motivated, you can just give them a, a textbook that was written 50 years ago and they could po- power through it if they're super motivated. A lot of what Khan Academy has been working on over the years is just trying to lower the activation energy you need uh, to be able to power through a subject. It's much easier with personalized software and videos. that's accessible from your phone or your laptop. Uh, AI tutors could make that even easier. But the human systems in a classroom is the teachers, the parents, peers. There's interesting ways, social engineering, potentially using technology that you can use them uh, to solve the motivation problem. Obviously, I think parents and teachers are the biggest Motivator or demotivator for a student. So it's not always a technological solution. It's oftentimes technology to uh, Do a little bit of social engineering to make make the the humans get more motivated But I I could list off a hundred things that I've learned (laughs) in all dimensions over the last
0: almost 20 years I may ask you some more of those in a moment here. Remind me how many courses subjects are housed within Khan Academy
1: it depends how you account for it. In English, we have on the order of 40-ish, I guess you could call it, courses. Uh, there's thousands of videos, hundreds of thousands of exercise items. I always emphasize the exercise items because people associate us with videos oftentimes. And, and that is a big part of what they we do. I, I still make videos. I've made a large chunk of them. But most of our resources have actually gone into the software, the practice, and the teacher tool side of things.
0: Which ones tend to be the most popular and why?
1: Algebra 1
0: is the most popular. Oh, hey, man, hallelujah. I mean, it crushed me two and a half years in a row.
1: It's not a surprise. You know, Algebra 1, we talk a lot about, and I've talked a lot about, that the main issue that happens in a lot of subjects, but especially in math, is students are all pushed ahead at a fixed pace. They might get a 70% on a test, too bad, you didn't know 30% of the material, we're gonna move on to the next subject. And the next subject is usually going to build on that test, that subject that you just got 70% on. Somehow expecting you to understand that even though you didn't know some important things from the previous material. And then that, that process just keeps happening. And students either never learned it in the first place or they forget certain things, and so they have all these Swiss cheese gaps. And algebra for a lot of students is the first course that actually assumes fluency of everything before it. So when you're when you're in an algebra course, the algebra teacher, for the most part, just assumes that you know your arithmetic. They they assume that you know, uh, you know, that you've mastered negative numbers, that you've mastered exponents, that you've mastered decimals. The reality is, very few kids have mastered all of those things. So they get to the algebra class. The cognitive load of doing all of this pre-algebra and arithmetic uh, makes it very hard to engage with the algebra. Even if it's an amazing teacher, it's very hard with 30 kids in a classroom. To, to figure out which pre-algebra skills kids uh, need, need help with.
0: You know, without this becoming a soliloquy, I hope I give some voice to parents that are watching and listening. I went on to become a, a corporate officer in a global public company. I've had a very successful career, ups and downs like all of us. In 10th grade, I failed Algebra one. went to summer school, didn't pass it. 11th grade, retook Algebra one, failed it, Went back to summer school, barely passed. Barely passed statistics in college. Went on to have a very successful career. It was like teaching me Mandarin at the age of, you know, I'm not kidding you, 14. It was actually enormously, deleteriously impactful to my self-esteem, my self-confidence. You could argue even my self-worth. Well, here I am, a senior in high school student body president, but I'm still taking like general math because I can't go on to Algebra II, I can't go to Geometry, I can't go to Calculus. And, and had I had Khan Academy, it may have had a massively positive impact on my ability to get into a better college and get my degree faster, maybe even go on to get an MBA, but I stayed far from it. Now I have to be able to read a p and as a corporate officer, no problem there. But I'm guessing there are millions of stories like me of people that benefited from the confidence you instilled in them, or people my generation that would say, wow, imagine what my academic trajectory might have been like, my career potential, had I had some help in these nuanced subjects that I never needed to use in life, but I had to master to progress through the U.S. education system. You're welcome to validate or dispute that however you'd like.
1: Yeah, look, that's one of the reasons why back in 2006 2007 i started to realize that there's there's something here i started getting letters from folks even at that early stage from all over the world saying i thought i was i thought i was dumb and now i realize that i just had a few gaps or i finally get what you're talking about i had this uh, mother send me an email this was 2007 saying that both of her sons had a learning disability and they were having trouble keeping up with their class until they found You know, that was a very nascent version of Khan Academy until they found Khan Academy. That was what was allowing them to keep up and even do well in their class. And she said that her and her family were praying for me and my family every night. You can imagine, you know, I I was an analyst at a hedge fund. I was not used to people praying for me. But when you read notes like that, and I was getting them on a regular basis. And that was when we were one thousandth the scale that we are today. I was like, wow, if, if, if it's already having this impact, imagine if, we, if I at the time worked more on this and if we were to scale to millions or tens of millions or one day billions, um, that, that's what gave me the conviction. It was only later we started doing rigorous efficacy studies, but those anecdotes and that's, those are kind of the everyday anecdotes we get almost on a minute by minute basis. Now people sending us notes like that. Uh, And then we have some that are, you know, you can make movies about where there was a young man, he was in, he got a 30 year prison sentence. His mom was giving him Khan Academy transcripts, just paper printouts while he's in jail. Uh, he got his sentence commuted to 15 years, gets out of prison. His, his most exciting thing once he's out of prison is that he can access Khan Academy for real. And he, he goes to the local community college, uses Khan Academy in parallel, does unusually well. He uses our SAT prep, decides to take the SAT, gets a 15-something, uh, transfers to Stanford. And the way I meet this guy, his name's Jason, you can look it up. If you look up like Jason prison Khan Academy, you'll find his, his story online. Um, I spoke, I guess lectured at a CS course, a computer science course at Stanford. And I said, anyone have questions? And I see this guy in his 30s, raise his hand, and he just starts crying. And I'm like, oh, I don't know where this is going, this is, this is strange. But then he tells this whole story while he's choking up. By the end of his story, all of us are choking up. Um, there's a young girl uh, grew up in Afghanistan, Taliban takes over their town. This became her lifeline. She just published a book called *Defiant Dreams*, like a real book. Her name's the Sola Mafuz. Um, she is now a quantum computing researcher at Tufts, um, and and she attributes Khan Academy as the thing that was her her her, her lifesaver. So, you know, I don't want to be too self-aggrandizing of our organization, but yeah, this this is the kind of stuff that definitely wakes me up in the morning and gets me pretty pumped, and sometimes to power. Every, any any organization has its hard times and the stuff that you don't necessarily want to do, but. These are the, the stories that, that definitely get me very motivated.
0: I'm delighted you shared it. It's, it's very endearing. Uh, in many ways, you are a futurist, an ed tech futurist as well. Uh, let's look at the future. Uh, what are the skills that you think are most in demand in the coming, say, five plus years? I am the father with my wife of three young boys. Now, this week, they are nine, 12, and 13. And I'd love to know what you think are the emerging skills that future employers are going to need from these three boys five, 10 years in the future as they enter an unrecognizable workforce?
1: So half of my answer is actually going to be very traditional. And I actually don't think people talk about these traditional skills enough. It's it's become very fashionable to talk about other things. But I think the classics, reading, writing, arithmetic, it's always bothered to me that that's the third R because it starts with an A, (laughs) arithmetic, math, whatever you want to call it. Um, I think those are going to be just as important or more important. Obviously, you're already seeing these generative AI be able to perform at, say, the 80th percentile in a lot of standardized exams. The next generation is going to perform at the 90, 95th percentile. Some people are saying, oh, well, the AI cannot do the math. It cannot write papers. It cannot do your reading comprehension for you. And my rebuttal to that is, that is true, and it is getting better. But those who are going to be uh, in demand are those who know how to leverage these AI to do very powerful things. And you can't be an editor of a paper unless you can hopefully write reasonably well, at least as good as as your writers. You can't be a a software architect if you can't really understand what, what code is being written. So I think those classic skills are going to be just as important as ever. I think what has classically been called soft skills, which you know, arguably aren't that soft. Things like communication, things like empathy, things like listening are going to be hugely in demand. They have always been in demand. I would think the thing that's so everything I've just said has always been demand. Even if we're talking about two hundred years ago, those were those were good skills to have. Uh, I think the the skills that are going to be even more important going forward are are things that I would you know creativity, entrepreneurship. The rate of change is is so fast people who are what I would call first principles thinkers who don't just pattern match to what other people are doing saying, okay, I'm gonna do more of that. Uh, instead, they say, okay, look, the tools from, the tools this year are different than the tools last year. Let me question all of my assumptions. Maybe there's another way to do this. Uh, I think that actually, that entrepreneurship, that creative, creativity, first principles thinking is gonna be what, what gives some people some superpowers.
0: Let's um, build a bridge on that with chat GPT and AI it seems like the train is going at so like Eurotrain speed, right, It's just like super fast, and everybody is talking about well, your company will be extinct in five years if you're not adopting AI, and, and all those, you know, hyper uh, projections. And it feels to me there's also this sort of cottage industry bubbling up around people that are saying, caution. Um, a publisher. You may not use chat GPT to write your book. You have to sign a contract that says it's all original thinking. Or organizations that are writing press releases or documents, it needs to be original thinking or whatever. There seems to be this sort of voice of caution, this voice of concern. They don't seem to be traditionalists. It just seems like there, there is a group of people that are concerned about, therefore what? Therefore, what is the downside to this? I'm not sure I've asked the question right, but how would you weigh in on this, this balance of this race to AI and all the efficiencies that it's creating in organizations, customer service, you name it, social media management, web you know, analytics, and this other st- stronger voice that's coming in saying, hold down, here are all the impacts of this. Is this really the best thing for us? Riff on that, whoever you'd like.
1: Yeah. I- you know, this is one of the situations where um, it feels like there's a lot of hype, and what typically, and we saw some of this in the late 90s as well around the internet, and what we learned from the internet, and I think is actually even more true today, is, yeah, you do go into a hype cycle, and you know, you have pets.com with crazy valuations and all that, and then the hype cycle bursts, but then you fast forward 10 years to 20 years, and you realize that hype was actually understating the implications. If if I were to tell you in 1998 or 1999 that Amazon and Google are going to be multi you know trillion dollar plus companies most people would have thought wow you're really you're really drinking the kool-aid now but we we now know that that's a reality uh, so I, I and I do believe that this cycle that we're in is actually going to happen faster and you mentioned the euro train it's it's a train that's accelerating uh, this is what's kind of mind-boggling we're very close to the open AI folks we're close to the Google folks and a lot of people it's interesting almost every every uh, organization that has what I would call a frontier model. Frontier model is like the, the, the generative AI models that are at you know, the most cutting edge. Almost all of them reach out to us whenever uh, they have something new because they see us, Khan Academy, as a trusted party who has a strong technical capability uh, that could do something social positive uh, for, for, with, with the AI. So we, we have a, a, a front seat view to see how fast this is changing. It is accelerating, even I get overwhelmed sometimes. What I remind myself is, Sal, breathe. It's it's, it's not going to play out overnight, but it is probably going to play out in the in the five to 10 year time frame. So it is the time for people to take a very serious look at it and be entrepreneurial and have the, that first principles thinking. On the, the the fears, the guardrail side, I think there's some that you definitely have to attend to. Uh, what we're doing at Khan Academy, Con Migos, our generative AI tutor and teaching assistant, we were, we're afraid of, well, what if, Students get into weird conversations with an AI. Well, that will, we just need to make those conversations transparent to parents and teachers. We have to have a second AI that moderates the conversations and notifies parents or teachers if anything suspicious is happening. It, you know, cheating is a big question mark. Uh, well, for education purposes, Conmigo does not cheat. It Socratically helps. What about kids cheating anyway? They're going to go to ChatGPT and get their essay written. Well, what if What if teachers could assign it through the AI? The AI works with the student, doesn't do it for them, but supports them. And then the AI can report back to the teacher the process of how the essay was written versus just the output. Well, then it becomes very hard to cheat because if a student goes and gets their sister to write the paper or gets ChatGPT to write the paper and just copies and pastes it in, our AI will tell the teacher, well, I don't know where this paper came from. They just copied and pasted it in. Everyone else in the class, they took four hours to write this paper. And, And by the way, this work isn't similar to what they've been doing in the class. So we think that um, we just have to state the risks, and we just have to think about what guardrails we we can put in. I think some of the the reactionary fears. I'm not sure whether those are going to serve folks well. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, I, I think about things like the, um, the 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 Screenwriters Guild strike uh, recently, and. People rightfully have fears around around generative AI because you could go to GPT-4 right now and it can write fairly thoughtful parts or even large parts of a screenplay uh, decently well. Um, But I I think there's, instead of saying you cannot use this, if I'm a a screenwriter, I say, well, what more could I now do? I could now do more screenplays in a given year than I would have done before. I could even potentially use generative AI to go beyond being a screenplay writer. Maybe now the cost of producing a movie gets dramatically smaller. Um, I could could produce a whole movie um, now as opposed to just writing the screenplay. So I think people should have a more of a uh, less of a scarcity mindset of like, oh, this is this or a territorial mindset and more of an opportunity mindset.
0: So let's talk about the future of learning. Let me make an outrageous statement and then you can bring some sanity to it or maybe it's a question. In 20 years, will our children still be busing to elementary school from 745 to 315? In 20 years, will um, the University of Florida still have 50,000 kids on campus, undergraduate students, whatever the number is? What do you think is different about the future of education that parents, human resource professionals, for that matter, the younger generation thinking about what, what, what do you see where's the puck going
1: yeah to, well to start directly answering your question i think the physical aspect of education is very powerful uh, now obviously there are ways if you know if you don't have access to a school resources like khan academy can hopefully get you to where you need to go that happened with sola from afghanistan uh, that might happen with a student who lives in rural alaska and there's not a calculus class within an hour's drive well yeah the Khan Academy can raise the floor for them but the ideal I think always will be the children go they meet each other they, there's caring adults there they're supported in what what they're doing and you know those skills of learning to collaborate and communicate and socialization and regulate your emotions and you know m- be motivated and uh, uh, set goals and meet them and be held accountable, those are also invaluable skills when you talk about skills of the future, and those are best learned in a physical environment. Some people might debate in 15, 20 years, virtual reality might be really good, but it's not, I don't think it's going to be anywhere close to the power of a real in-person environment. So I think you're going to have that. I think college for um Somewhat rational reasons, but also very strong cultural reasons, is also going to be a thing still in, in 20 years. But I think how these things are done is going to change when you pay close attention to them. And I think you're going to see many more alternative pathways than you, than you see today. So in terms of how it's actually done, I've been a big proponent. People are sometimes surprised to hear me to say that. I, was like, look, I think technology can actually unlock more human interaction, which is good. So your classic classroom, if you were to visit a, a Victorian era classroom, and unfortunately many classrooms even today, you'll see a teacher just lecturing and kids just in desks in rows, you know, taking notes and or fingers on their lips, not allowed to talk. That's kind of a I, I think that's a somewhat dehumanizing experience. You're not allowing human beings who are in a room together to actually talk to each other. Kids, if a friend asks another friend, hey, how did you do problem number three? That she's like, Shh, you can't talk. And even though that was a lost opportunity for some one-on-one support to, to build a bond, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the classroom of the future, what we've been advocating for, and I think is already getting accepted as the best practice is every moment when those people are in a room together, it should be active. They should be interacting with each other. And, and the, the value of technology is it can help facilitate some of that. Uh, I can imagine in 20 years, you will be having AI almost be in the fabric of what's in the classroom. A teacher, it'll be able to talk to the teacher in the ears, like, you know, I think little, little Joey is having trouble with uh, this question, and by the way, five kids in the classroom just asked about entropy. You just mentioned the word. You might want to expand on it a little bit. A student, while they're interacting, they're working on a simulation with the AI, or maybe in virtual reality with their friends, who knows? They can have a question, and the AI can help them that. The AI can help the teachers create lesson plans, uh, write progress notes to the, to the, um, to, to the parents, AI, at that point, I know this sounds a little bit creepy, so you'd have to put guardrails on it, but it can look at students' affects, and it can tell which students are really in danger of disengaging, which students might be able to help which uh, help with, with students. So I think you're going to have all of that. I'm actually very confident that's going to be mainstream in, 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 a um, in a 10-year time horizon. In terms of the systems themselves, I've been advocating very strongly. I think the world will go this way because it's, it's rational that we move from a seat-time-based system to a competency-based system. seat time, if you look at most universities, they'll say, we require three years of math, two years of foreign language, three years of, of humanities. They should say, we require you to have fluency in algebra. We require you to be able to write at this level. We require you to be able to speak a foreign language versus you sat in a classroom, for, if, that, if that's what they really care about, versus you sat in a classroom. The power of competency-based learning is you set where you want people to be and then it creates a ton of flexibility about how people can do that. Some of it might be in a traditional classroom. Some of them, they might use a, you know, a, one of these massively open online courses. Some people might use Khan Academy. Some people might be able to go to the local community college and learn some of those skills. For some people, it might take two weeks. For other people, it might take two years. But what matters is, do they actually uh, learn, learn, get competency in, in that skill? Um, and I think you're going to have, in that competency mo- framework, you're going to have other pathways outside of college potentially more accessible and more low cost that have as good or even better uh, economics to them in terms of career options. So that it's not viewed as the only way to go to the you know, middle or upper middle class life
0: is through college. There, I think college will still be a path, but I think there'll be alternatives. Sal, same question, different setting. Think about corporate learning environments. It's where most of us really have refined our skills, whether it be Excel or PowerPoint or communication skills. Uh, what do you think the future of corporate learning looks like? Right. Obviously, there is the gig economy and the rise of creator economies and, and um, side hustles, but the vast majority of people still work for organizations and probably will for the foreseeable future. What do you think corporate learning looks like differently in the next decade?
1: I think you're going to have an AI assistant uh, that's with you all of the time uh, as you go through your, your corporate life, so to speak. And it'll be able to do everyday things that, you know, you might not be a fan of doing right now, like, well, you know, simple things like filtering your emails, uh, suggesting responses. Some of, you know, some AIs are already doing things like that, Uh, but it'll get more and more intelligence. Like, hey, I think you'd be able, you should write a note to this person because you were just in this meeting and you talked about this issue that product management should do, but there's no product managers in the room. So I've drafted an email for you uh, to to email you know these three product managers so that they can cascade that to their team. So you're going to have stuff like that, but from a corporate learning point of view, I think it's going to be able to observe a meeting and give you feedback on how you could have facilitated that meeting better or how you could have participated in that meeting better. We're already doing this. We have another platform called schoolhouse.world. It's another not-for-profit. It's free tutoring over Zoom. The way that we're able to give free tutoring over Zoom to anyone is it it, it leverages volunteer tutors who we vet and we... But one of the things that we are already starting to do is give them feedback using an AI. An AI observes the volunteer tutors and says, hey, this is how we think you could have done it better. You could have focused a little bit more on this. Here's another example you could have given. I think you're going to have that type of real-time feedback um, as as you work. And at some point, if you get confused by something, if you don't understand what a data scientist is telling you or something like that, your tutor is going to be able to tell you almost in real time where you could whisper to it or just you know text it um, hey you know what, what is what does that acronym mean or wait I don't get if we're doing a why are they talking about B and so you're going to be able to learn that in, in real time there, there, there's going to be opportunities also when you're not in the moment I think the best learning actually does happen in the moment but most people don't talk about that in corporate learning because that's usually viewed as like a managerial thing but I actually think that's the ultimate learning but there's other things where I want to become an expert at machine learning or I want to learn better, you know, marketing techniques or whatever. Uh, but even there, I think in, te- in the five, 10 year time frame, you're going to be able to have a long running Socratic one on one session with an AI uh, that's going to be able to, 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 to get you there. But even sometimes maybe you facilitate interactions between you and other people as well that you could learn from or that you can learn together with.
0: Sal, what's going to catch most leaders off guard, whether it, you know, it's not-for-profit leaders or government leaders or f- corporations, what's coming that everybody needs to have a, a, a heightened level of curiosity about, a keenness in terms of their own agility to learn? What tsunami is coming that's going to change the way we live and work and learn the most that everybody needs to think about when this podcast ends?
1: Oh, that's a big question. Um, you know, it's hard to know hundred percent sure. what I found interesting about this whole AI inflection point that we are in and it is an inflection point. We are living in a science fiction book just to be just to be clear it's and I read a lot of science fiction books. It's happening. I think a lot of people get focused with the core technology they think oh, I need to learn about large language models and I need to learn I need to learn how you know what, how back propagation works to train a neural net and I have to learn this or that. It is probably helpful to have some facility in that, just that it is useful to somewhat know how the internet works. Uh, but I think the real power is understanding how you might use these tools uh, to improve productivity or quality or output. Uh, I, I think in the next five years, you're going to start seeing some surprising things where you know, the status quo is you need these large relatively slow moving organizations to do certain things or parts of organizations to do certain things and all of a sudden you're going to see people come onto the scene. They're able to do that in much more uh, uh, nimble and lean ways. We saw this with the Internet. You're going to see this even more in spades with generative AI plus the Internet. You know, I I point out a lot of times WhatsApp when it was acquired for I think it was 18 or 19 billion dollars had like I think 17 or 18 employees. So they got literally a billion dollars per employee evaluation. Uh, it's it's not unusual to see internet companies although that, that that might be an extreme example I think you're going to see more and more of of that. And so I think if, if you're at a larger company um, I Would I would push your team to double down on that I just had a I did a ask me anything with one of my teams that I could sense they were a little bit afraid that some of what they jo- their job was under threat because of generative AI and they said hey you know, are, are we thinking about layoffs? Because, and I said, no. Look, there's two mindsets. You could say we're going to do the same, we're going to have the same resources, uh, or we're going to have, we're going to do the same work with fewer resources, or we could say we're going to do uh, more work with the same resources. And there's a lot of work to do right now. So we're much more of the latter. And I said, the last thing that I would want to do is if one of you figured out a way to do your job more efficiently, that somehow it penalizes you, it would be the opposite. I would I would want to put you on a pedestal and show the rest of the team, look, uh, he or she just figured out how to improve their productivity three times using Gen AI. You know, employee of the month, <laughs> everyone else emulate this. But don't be worried about layoffs because we can do more. No no company feels like they have enough resources to do all of the scope that they want to do. And usually the answer is let's hire and hire and hire. And then that has its own complexities to it. I think the, the organizations that are providing the right motivations for their team to to go deep on this, to, to try to uh, and not be afraid that it'll lead to weird consequences, I think they're gonna do pretty well.
0: Sal, earlier you mentioned Conmingo. Talk a bit about that and how people can resource that to their advantage.
1: Yeah, it, it's um, once, OpenAI reached out to us over a year ago and I, I was familiar with GPT-1, 2, and 3 uh, I thought it was fascinating from a technological point of view, but I didn't think it was going to have any relevance to Khan Academy anytime soon. This was well before. This was two or three months before ChatGPT came out. ChatGPT, many folks know, it was built on top of GPT 3.5, which had actually already been out there for many, many months, and it's interesting. Uh, but this was months before that even came out. Uh, Sam Altman and Greg Brockman, two of the founders of OpenAI, they showed me what would be now known as GPT-4, and that blew my mind because. It, it could actually take on personas and in, in AI speak, it's, it's a very steerable model uh, and it has lower, you know, it's much more accurate. It still can hallucinate. That's the, the technical term for when AIs make up things. It still has some issues with math. But when I saw that, wow, it can really take on some personas of a, AI, of a tutor of a teaching assistant. And if you think about everything that Khan Academy has been doing, it's really been trying to scale what I was doing for my cousins almost 20 years ago. Uh, we were doing it through videos and software, but now we, maybe we could do it through, through AI as we started to really start to pivot a large chunk of our organization around this, we started asking all the questions about safety and guardrails and bias. And I told our team, look, um, we have to move boldly, but responsibly. Let's take all of these fears, all of these risks, and instead of using those as reasons not to do something, let's turn them into features. So we're afraid of, of safety, well, let's put some guardrails in there. Let's make it a way for parents and teachers to monitor what students are doing. And by the way, it's already safer than letting a kid browse the internet, <laughs> I, I would, I, in, my, in my opinion. But because, like, let's, let's, let's keep doubling down on this. But what we now have, what we call Conmigo, which is Khan Academy's AI assistant for students as a tutor, for teachers as a teaching assistant. It can help create lesson plans, grade papers. Uh, for students, it can Socratically help them through things. But it can even do things that even a... A traditional tutor wouldn't do. It can emulate literary characters. You can talk to Winnie the Pooh or Eeyore or The Great Gatsby. It can emulate historical characters. Uh, Students can interview um, them. We're creating new tasks where teachers can create assignments like, you know, talk to talk to Thomas Jefferson and see if you can problem solve around this, or see if together you can you can find a solution to the following. Um, And I think where we're going, you know, we're already starting to add uh, the ability to talk and listen to the AI. I think in the Three, four five year time horizon you're going to be able to zoom with the ai the way that you know we're, we're zooming right now um it's going to be able to support you while you write it's going to be able to um it, we're, we're already introducing a sense of memory so it knows you it remembers what you talked about if you said you like soccer it remembers that for next time if you say you're a ninth grade teacher it'll remember that uh but it's all very transparent to the to the learner so I, i'm very hopeful uh that this can take learning to the next level. And, and by the way, you know, we, we are starting to think at Khan Academy, how can this transcend Khan Academy? So we are looking at ways that Conmigo, we've, we had a bunch of folks from corporate settings reach out to us and said, hey, we love Conmigo. Could we use Conmigo for our corporate learning? And we're like, hmm, maybe you can. So we're, we're actually exploring that as we speak. We're talking to several corporate partners about Conmigo sitting on their platforms, or maybe Conmigo sitting in the browser. So wherever their employees go, it's there to support them with their learning, especially on their corporate internet as they go through courses and things. Conmigo can help tutor them.
0: Sal, our time is ending. What's next for you?
1: Well, you can imagine, uh, you know, there's a lot that we've done over the last ten years with our efficacy studies, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of where my headspace is right now is, all right, we have, I think, a, a very strong efficacious platform. How do we leverage that and, and the trust that we have, uh, hopefully well earned? Uh, how do we now take this AI tool uh, or this AI technology and you know double down on it? Um, and once again, it's not just using a technology for the sake of using a technology, but it's for a real social impact goal of empowering as many people as possible. As I say, I think the ultimate application of AI is to advance HI, is to advance human intelligence, and that's that's the game that we're in.
0: I understand you have another book coming out in the spring of 2024. Can you give us a sneak peek about that?
1: Yes, it might not surprise folks. Uh, the title is Brave New Words, The Future of AI in Education and Work. So very relevant to what we've been talking about.
0: Well, i look forward to reading that and perhaps having you back on. Salman Khan, founder of Khan Academy, Khan Mingo, numerous other not-for-profit resources to help democratize access to education. Oh, how I wished you would have been around in 1984 when I was first enrolled in Algebra One. But I appreciate all you and that your like minded colleagues have brought to literally change the future of education, your class act. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership.